I V M. The Inheritors Podcast Series by Bloomberg Quint. Welcome to The Inheritors, a podcast series that talks of all aspects of family businesses. I am Sonu Bhasin, and today I am in conversation with Sanjay Kapoor, the CEO and head of the Sona Group. The Sona Group is one of the largest manufacturers of components for the automotive industry, not only in India but across the world. Besides heading this group, Sanjay is also an avid polo player, and brings a lot of the learnings from polo into the business and his management style. But as he says, it could just be the reverse. Today, as he talks to us, he takes us through the genesis of the Sona Group, which started off as Sona Steering, and how over the years his father actually groomed him to take his place one day. Over to Sanjay. Yeah, Sanjay. Okay. So welcome to the podcast, Thank and you. good of you to take time out and speak to the listeners about uh, your journey and your business. So let's get started mm-hmm. from the your early childhood. When was it that you realized that you were part of a family business? So uh, my early childhood began in uh, Mumbai. Um, my father came back in the early seventies from the U.S. He was finishing his PhD when I was born. I was born there, uh, and then we, you know, came back to Mumbai. Um, he had married my mother, who was from a business family. uh you know and he was more he was from a family of jewelers sure, yes. however he um had studied mechanical engineering um and he wanted to do something with that sort of in that field and uh his father-in-law had an idea of you know setting up a gear business for the automotive component industry and uh he set up a company called the bharat gears called bharat gears uh back in the you know i'd say mid 70s and it was set up in thane and we lived in mumbai and um, you know bombay then and uh, almost every weekend we'd go to the factory mm. uh, you know the factory was very in the old traditional style had a guest house and you know had a big well uh, with fish in the well and there were dogs all around so it was very sort of you know old world sort of factories the way they were it was a large piece of land uh, had a lot of sort of green area etc so Uh, we were three kids, my two sisters and I, and uh, we'd sort of get into the car on the weekends, and we'd drive to the factory, and we'd spend, you know, all of Saturday there. Pretty much, um, my father was working, and you know, we'd be sort of running around uh, that little guest house area, etc. So that's really when you know we got introduced to uh, the factory work, a factory environment, um, and that continued, you know, for a long period of time. Uh, I of course went to day school in uh, Bombay, and uh, both my sisters and I went to cathedral uh, when we were young, and then we all went off to boarding school. I went to Doon, and my sisters went to Wellams. From there, um, you know, we I started studying German as a second language. That was in school. In school, in Doon school, uh, and I was sitting my ICSC exams, and I was doing German as a language. So German was instead of Sanskrit. Instead of Hindi. Instead of Hindi, yes. you had a U.S. passport, so I had the option. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father was doing a lot of work with Germany, um, so you know we got exposed to Germany because he was actually working with a company called ZF, where we were supplying gears to Germany, and he was uh, doing a lot of great stuff because the Indian economy itself was very very small. 
not many companies were interested in looking at the Indian economy at that point in time in terms of bringing technology or bringing companies into India. However, he was exporting to Germany, which was a big achievement. This was achievement. in the 70s. It was in the 70s. He was exporting to Germany. And uh, I remember going with him to Fendt Tractors uh, in Friedrichshafen, to ZF in Friedrichshafen, you know, visiting. We'd go on a lot of business trips with him because he'd take the whole family and we'd sort of, you know, uh, hang around. And he would then invite people over to our home in Bombay. Um, and it was quite interesting because I was always made to make a welcome speech to whoever came. Uh, in German. In, in English. In English, in English at yeah. that time. And my sisters would do a little Bharat Natyam performance. So it was all like a little family uh, sort of skit we'd put together. We had the, Friedrich, uh, the mayor of Friedrichshafen once come to our home. And Friedrichshafen, because Fent Tractors was there, and we were supplying to Fent. And then ZF was under Fabrik, which is ZF, was also there. So we were exposed to that whole sort of, you know, culture. Uh, coming back to why I said, you know, uh, why I made the point about learning German was also because then when I was 14, I went to BMW to work. Uh, so I was... You only, must have been in school. Yeah, I was in school. So this was during holidays. Uh, during the summertime, my father... So interestingly, uh, so let me let me go back a little bit. We, he, you know, he ran Bharat Gears for, for a while. Was and it his company or did he run it? So it, he, it was my father, his father-in-law's company. So it was my right. grandfather's company. Um, and he ran the business, he set the business up, he ran it, etc. And then uh, in the late 80s, he decided he wanted to do something on his own, which he wanted to own, you know, as opposed to owned by the family. So that's when the idea of Sona came around. That's when the idea of, you know, the steering business came around. But before that, just prior to that, in the late 80s, again, he had a, uh, an agency for BMW. So he to was sell to sell cars. So he was one of the first people to get the agency for BMW in India. In Bombay. In in, in Delhi. In Delhi. At that time. I see. Um, so what prompted the move from Bombay to Delhi? Yeah. So a uh, couple of things. One was you know he was originally from Delhi. Uh, two, he wanted to set up something with his brothers at that time. Uh, they were all, one of his brothers was you know in the fabric business, and two of them were in one of them was in jewelry, and the other was in jewelry, but outside of India. Um, Three, of course, I think the driving force was that he wanted to do something with Maruti. Mm -hmm. And Maruti setting up in Gurgaon, etc., you know, was uh, prompted, you know, to move to, to, to Delhi. We had a base in Delhi, so it was also an easy sort of decision for him to make. Uh, going back to, you know, just to complete the BMW yeah. part of it, um, again, I was, uh, because of his uh, association with BMW, I had the opportunity to work on the shop floor. Uh, mm -hmm. for about, you know, four weeks during the summer. More of a German learning experience than mm -hmm. anything else. But it was a great experience for me because, you know, I was a little kid and I was giving these overalls and, you know, given a map of a subway station. I was living with an employee off the head office. I think uh, someone who worked in the, in probably the CEO or, or one of the senior people's uh, offices. And I was living on their couch and, you know, mm -hmm getting up every morning and Monday to Friday, going to, you know, the uh, the factory and sort of learning the ropes. It was a very interesting experience for me. And that was when I really got a feeling of shop floor. Mm -hmm. Whilst, you know, when we were kids, we were fascinated by the forklift and by, you know, all that other stuff and the tractors, etc. In the factory, we never really got an experience of the shop floor as such. But this was really the, my first time experience on the shop floor. Um... And then sort of coming back to, you know, him moving to Delhi uh, in, in the late 80s, Maruti 
had an opportunity where they were looking for a steering uh, maker. Mm-hmm. So my father decided that he'd go out and get the technology uh, mm-hmm. from uh, JTEC, which was then called Koyo Seiko, uh, part of the Koyo Bering, Koyo Seiko group. Um, and we, he went out and sort of, I think he was visited Japan almost every month for almost six or eight months before they signed a joint venture agreement with them because they had had some bad experience in India, you know, with uh, regard to one of their partners paying them royalty, etc. So uh, he spent, you know, every month spent time there just sort of convincing them that he was the right partner for them and that they should enter India. And the steering business was, you know, required by Maruti at that time. And, you know, again, the market was so small. However, you know, he saw an opportunity and he was a true, true entrepreneur where, you know, he saw a risk that he wanted to sort of mitigate. Um, so that's how he set up Sona Steering. And, and the name was. Sona, I'm told, is because of your family business of jewelry. Yeah, so the name Sona, for him, uh, it was associated with trust because mm-hmm. uh, jewelry at that point was never sold with a certificate, but it was sold on trust. trust. And Sona, I mean, meaning gold in, in Hindi, etc. So that whole association of, of gold and jewelry and Sona was associated with trust. For him, you know, reputation, integrity, trust, things like these were really key, uh, you know, to any success uh, that he sort of saw in business. So as part of growing up, you pretty much did uh, go visit the factory. You were clear that you were part of a business family. Uh, when were those first uh, seedlings that started taking sprout in your mind that you may also want to come back uh, once you finish studies yeah. and join the family business? So while I was in school, I also did a stint, uh, almost I took a semester off and did a stint at a steering factory, which was owned by uh, Koyo, at uh, JTEC, which is called Koyo then, and TRW. It was a joint venture. Uh, traditionally, TRW, Koyo, you know, NSK, all these were competitors. However, in the U.S., they had a plant in Vano, Tennessee, called TRW Steering, TRW Koyo Steering. Hmm. And, and Koyo is a, a Japanese company. Koyo is Japanese, which we had a collaboration with. Sona Koyo, Sona Koyo, which is now called JTEC, of course. So we, uh, so I worked on the shop floor hmm. uh, when they first came out with the concept of tool crib, which was a Kanban concept, which was hmm. really, you know, replacing the right tools at the right mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. Uh, on the mm-hmm. shop floor mm-hmm. so that you don't waste time in production. So I was introduced to that concept and I must have been in my early 20, probably just about 20, 20, mm-hmm. 20 around that age. Uh, took a semester of co- school, um, college and then went and worked there and uh, you know that's when I got another real introduction to what the Japanese systems were etc. And uh, you know that then gave me uh, sort of the the feeling that, you know, I wanted to go back and work uh, in the business. So you've, you've actually, uh, as part of growing up, A, on one side, you were part of a family that ran businesses and then set up a business. And two, you were also exposed to the Japanese. And Japanese are very, very strong on culture. And they have some of the longest, uh, or the, you know, the, one, the family businesses that have lasted many, many generations, 82 generations, I think is the oldest one. What were some of the, uh, you know, A, similarities that you found working in a, you know, where culture takes primacy and two, any differences that you found in, you know, the two different cultures? 
So the Japanese companies we worked with. Um, and was sorry, Koy- Koyo a family yeah. owned so, business? So Koyo, Mitsubishi, these are the two large companies we joined venture with. It was not a family business. Somic, on the other hand, which we joined venture with, was family business. Um, I'd say the Japanese culture came into Indian business, especially in the automotive industry, because of Maruti. Mm. Uh, you know, the Japanese culture is very sort of process driven very sort of systematic and it's just very quality driven also and these are the things that we adapted with uh, from uh, you know the Japanese Uh, more than the family business culture uh, per se it was more the culture of you know quality the culture of you know following the system following the process and um, you know building up businesses around that Uh, I think the improvements that Japanese businesses make, the Kaizans, or the, which are incremental improvements, or the breakthroughs, etc., are great learnings for us, uh, you know, and have been great learnings for us across the automotive industry. I would actually credit the entire automotive industry to, you know, the joint ventures that we did with the Japanese, and a majority of us did these joint ventures, really to learn technology and to learn processes and to learn, you know, design. And today, we are able to, you know, compete globally because of what we learn from the Japanese mm. uh, from mm. that perspective mm. um, you know again you know Sona Koyo uh, you know was a joint venture which was set up initially for Maruti and then across you know different uh, customer bases we supplied to uh, again Koyo is also owned by Toyota partly mm. it's now of course mm. called JTEC because they absorbed uh, Toyota's steering division as well as the machinery division. So, JTEC became a large, uh, you know, company which was Toyota owned, and therefore we supplied mm-hmm. to Toyota, we supplied to Mahindra, we supplied to Maruti Suzuki, mm-hmm. uh, to Hyundai, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to, to across the board in the passenger car business. So, Japanese culture on one side, and then the German culture on the other. Uh, again, any differences that you see, any similarities that you see, or any anything that you then adapted uh, for the Indian culture, because you couldn't transplant that, obviously. So when it comes to Germany, um, you know, we have acquired a business there. Uh, in mm-hmm. 2008, we made a, an acquisition of ThyssenKrupp's forging division, mm-hmm. and uh, we acquired... Uh, the entire forging division of ThyssenKrupp, which made us, combined with our Indian entity, the world's largest gear manufacturers for uh, differential gears, uh, you know, and, and supplies across uh, passenger car, commercial vehicles, mm-hmm. off-highway vehicles, and well, farm equipment. Uh, from the German perspective, I would say um, most of the culture that we've adopted is from the Japanese, mm-hmm. uh, especially for our Indian businesses. Mm-hmm. So when we look at quality, you know, when we look at visual displays, when we look at, you know, our line setup, our, you know, assembly lines, everything we look at is very, very uh, oriented towards Japanese. If you look at uniforms, you mm. know, it's all very Japanese. Uh, the German culture is, is different, you know. Um, there's a lot of hierarchy in Germany, uh, contrary to what people may assume or believe, you know. There's a lot of emphasis on the owner, in, Ge- in Germany as opposed to you know, even India or Japan. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, working in Germany is very, very different from working in, in, in India. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's very, uh, diff- it's not as flexible, I'd say. It's, it's very, it's a very protective, uh, protective environment. And in is it hierarchical of, as well? 
very hierarchical, hierarchical, very much so. Um, you know, it's not easy to scale down, you know, and I always say this, whilst people look at, you know, other countries that are looking at protectionism, etc., as if Germany is as protected uh, as any other country, because it's not easy to sort of, you know, scale down when you, uh, when you need to. Uh, you know, the social costs are extremely high. Uh, so it's, it's a different experience. So I would say in India, we've adopted mostly the Japanese culture. So this is, you're talking about systems, you're talking about processes, and then you're talking of hierarchy. But business is ultimately about people. So now you've had an exposure to the German culture, uh, deep exposure to Japanese culture, and you've grown up in the Indian culture. Just talk a bit about how people are seen, treated across these cultures. Yeah, so like I said, you know... And then your own philosophy. Yeah, I mean, look, people are the most important, you know, part of business, especially today. You know, uh, earlier on we used to look at it from an IT perspective where we said at 5 o'clock all our assets leave the office. However, that is across the board in every industry today. So today I think the biggest thing we, we uh, you know, the biggest challenge we have is talent acquisition and retention of good uh, people. Um, I've enjoyed working with Indian people the most and that's why um, most of our expansion is, you know, focused around India. And why? Um, I'd say because, you know, uh, the culture of working here in, in terms of, you know, the ability to continuously learn, the ability to continuously adapt to the changing environment and then, you know, uh, transform ourselves in for uh, you know for that environment is is great here mm -hmm. in india um i would say in the, with the japanese you know we've learned a lot uh, they're very very system uh, driven very process driven uh, and they're very set in their ways which has you know you know allowed them to succeed in a, in, in a lot of fields uh, the germans i think you know it's very difficult to change mindsets there uh, you know, it's they're very also very set in their ways. Um, you know, it's a it's you've seen a lot. We've seen a lot of sort of successful companies uh, come out of Germany. However, you know, with all the change that's going on, all the disruption that's going on, it's also you know difficult when you've got a big ship to sort of change mindsets, yeah. etc. Uh, and I feel from that perspective, India is, is a lot easier to change mindsets. Yeah. Again, because Indians in general are very entrepreneurial in nature. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, this, that's just been my experience mm -hmm. from the three countries that we've discussed. So to go back to your uh, young adulthood, how, now that you look back, how did your father prepare you to join the business? So what my father did was, uh, you know, a couple of things he did, uh, which I, you know, really sort of value was he allowed me to uh, become an entrepreneur. Um, so in that, I set up uh, two different businesses. Uh, my first business I set up was in the engineering outsourcing space. And again, I set that up because there was a requirement in a manufacturing company which we worked with, which was based in Liechtenstein, a company called Krupp Presta. Mm -hmm. And uh, they made uh, components for us. And uh, I realized that there was a lot of data that they had in the form of 2D drawings. Uh, and at that point, we had been introduced to 3D software. Mm -hmm. And I asked them if I could really convert that data from 2D into 3D. Because I knew that they didn't have the manpower available, or, you know, or at the right price, uh, manpower at the right price also available, to convert 2D into 3D. So what I did was I actually took their 2D drawings, 
put couple of guys in a hotel room in the same town and in, i made them you know in lichtenstein yeah, huh. you know they were in a small town called essen which is mm. a little outside of vaduz mm. and um, i made these guys sit in a hotel room gave them a software uh, which is a 3d software and i said let's convert these drawings into real 3d and see how this process works and slowly we started uh, taking that data offshore so it was a typical bpo sort of uh, except in the engineering space uh, bpo sort of business and a lot of bpos had been set up at that point and i remember going and this and, was what early 90s this was uh, no this was in the late 80s late 90s uh, around uh, no it was So you would have yeah, finished, late 90s. You would have finished your yeah, education yeah. by I, late I yeah, I finished 80s. yeah, I finished my education. I'd come back. I my first first job I did was actually in in the HR department in Sonakur. I see. You I, worked in yeah, I came back and um I realized that in manufacturing in India there was a lot of focus on personnel mm. but nothing on HR. Mm. Uh we also ran a business without any sort of clear strategy in mind. Um mm. and it was a very different economy because you know it was just about 1991 was just about opening up etc uh, or it just opened up when i you know came back and um i remember sitting through uh, presentations that my father made uh, to each and every employee in the boardroom from the shop floor to the top manager to middle and to top management invited into the boardroom in groups of 20 30 50 depending on group and the presentation was made in english and in hindi and we he talked about and i remember on those slide projectors where you literally had to sort of change those, sheets of paper yeah those those mm-hmm. and it was talked about the change that was coming in india and how we were going from a cost plus economy mm-hmm. to a competitive economy mm-hmm. where we were going to face competition for the first time this was straight after 91 this is right after at, around that time mm-hmm. um and that sort of you know triggered my education in terms of strategy hr and i wanted to sort of learn a lot about that because i said you know if we're going to go into an, into a business where it's going to have competition we should have a strategy in place on how we're going to fight this competition where we're going to go with this business how we're going to grow and you know etc so i studied strategy i studied hr etc i came back joined the hr department i hired three uh, other mbas from amity business school i remember going out there recruiting them uh and they were just not accepted in in our system because we were engineering driven no one had really hired mbas no one liked mbas and they were eventually pushed out of the system but it was a great experience i'm still in touch with uh, you know with, with with a couple of them um and we tried to sort of work uh, to bring in performance appraisal etc how difficult was it it was it was an uphill task so i had a mentor called mr who's now called dr bijlani oh subhash uh, yes uh-huh. yeah so uh, he came and helped me a lot and i'm still in touch with him thank you very recently he came and helped me in terms of uh, setting up hr systems in the organization mm-hmm. and um, you know we set up performance we set everything up but it was very very difficult to get accepted uh, and did that resistance come from the old timers or did it really come from the owners of the business which is your dad and maybe uh, my, it or... never came from my father my father actually was very very open to new systems mm-hmm. you know uh, new ideas and uh, making improvements 
uh, it came really from uh, the old timers in the company. It came not even from the top top manager. It came from the second layer, you know. And I, um, you know, grew up in a very uh, in, in an environment where we were never really taught to be pushy or behave like owners' children, etc. You know, I always sort of you know called uh, you know everyone sir or Mr. So and so, etc. And uh, I worked with them without sort of pushing my, throwing my weight around, which resulted in us not well, being you successful. You thought you didn't push your weight around, I'm sure. Yeah, well, that, if I were to ask them, they would have a different... Well, if that were the case, we would have been <laughs> successful. Well, mm -hmm. The fact that we didn't succeed yeah. in terms of even holding on to these people... But because That's passive, it's passive yeah, aggression, yeah, right? Probably. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was that part of it. And then uh, during that time, I actually went... Uh, I met Pramod Basin. Mm -hmm. uh, who had just set up with Raman Roy the whole, G, you know, G uh, capital or whatever it was called at that time. Um, and uh, I looked at the call center and it was super exciting to see what they had done. That's where I said, you know, let me look at an engineering center. Mm. That's then going back to the mm. Propresta, mm. etc. I set this business up, had a little office in Oakland, so moved out of, you know, uh, the Sona factory mm. office uh, and set this up ran this and as it grew we moved back to Gurgaon because we needed more office space and uh, we were growing rapidly and then we started doing a lot of work for Sona as well. Uh, so whilst we were doing that I then slowly took this business and merged it into one of our operating entities uh, you know as the R&D center etc for our operating company and then uh, slowly moved back into an operational role uh, in our ball joint factory mm -hmm. called Sona Somic Lemphora, which was then a three-way joint venture between a German company, a Japanese company and us. So that would have been fun if you had Germans and Japanese yeah. and Indians in the same boardroom. So, yeah. so it, was, it, was, it, was, it was an interesting experience, but it was divided that way because the Japanese believed that the Germans would bring the German customers, Japanese brought the Japanese customers and we'd bring the Indian customers. Mm -hmm. uh, this business was really set up as a backward integration for our steering business. Mm -hmm. So it's a ball joint, which then makes the long gear, what is called the long gear mm -hmm. in the steering gear, uh, connects the two, uh, it connects the steering system to the wheels, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so one here and one there. Mm -hmm. Well, here, yeah. Ah, okay. In, in the, uh, the ball joints and the, mm -hmm. the wheels. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I was managing director of the business. I brought in a, a really good COO, uh, and we put in a lot of quality systems. We really, really tried to improve the business, you know, and, and we kept growing that business. We then came to a point where, you know, we were restructuring our businesses and we decided to exit this the ball joint business because we figured that we had met our needs. Our needs at that time, in the, when we set this business up, was there was no good ball joint manufacturer for the steering business. For and any uh, brand, for any vehicle in India, in India, there were no. So we were the right. largest steering system manufacturer for passenger car, right. and our choke point was the ball joint at that point. Mm -hmm. So uh, we set this. In fact, if you look at Rani, which is uh, another competitor in the steering business, they also have their own ball joint facility. Mm -hmm. So we set this up because we nobody could meet the quality standards in the delivery we required. Mm -hmm. We had achieved what we wanted to achieve, so we pulled out of this business. I then set up another entrepreneurial venture called Sixth which was a car rental business. So I got the master franchise. Car rental? Yes. Mm -hmm. 
Sixth is a German company, mm-hmm. uh, which is now global, of course, and very, very strong in Europe, uh, strong in Asia, uh, now becoming stronger in the US uh, and South America. Um, and they're a family-run business, and uh, they're in the car rental space, and we identified car rental as a good services business, and yet we had our roots in, or, or our feet in the automotive business. So I set this business up, um, and it was uh, super exciting because, uh, you know, it was a service business. It was very, very different from manufacturing. Uh, it required a lot of different sort of strategies, and we brought in uh, Dr. Jagdish Shet uh, from yeah, the marketing guy. yeah from yeah. Emory yeah. uh, as our sort of you know consultant. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember him telling us that you can either have uh, you know be a uh, hundred shops in one city, or be one shop in a hundred cities, and it's always better to be hundred shops in one city. And we would get, went against everything he said, and we failed miserably. Um, I'd say this is one of our big business failures. Um, however, you know there was a lot of learning from that yeah. uh, that came out of that. Um, so, what did you learn? I think you know. One and num- how did your dad react to it? My father was sort of you know again uh, was a very progressive thinker. Uh, his whole uh, sort of uh, you know his his. His only comment to me was, make a seven-point presentation of what you should not do in a business. Mm. That's it. You know, it's a learning. We lost money. Um, however, we should have learned something from it. And, you know, I want to say that, that there was a few things that really sort of brought us to this uh, or brought this failure about. One was, you know, we were in a services business which was highly unorganized. Um, which year was this? 2006. As late as that. Yeah. So it's, it was, uh, sorry, it was 2000 and, yeah, around Early 2000s. Three, early 2000. Mm. I think we shut it in 2006 or mm. seven. So it was between 2003, 2002, 2003. Around there. Um, what happened was, today if you look at that business, it would have been great because the Ubers of the world are here. Uh, the model is really an aggregator model. But you owned the assets. We owned the assets. Mm. That was the problem. We went up, we ramped up to 400 assets, right. uh, 400 cars in a span of a year. We went to every city possible. Uh, we went with clients like J Airways, uh, IBM, Accenture, and they were like, we wanted you to be in every city. The most used vehicle was a Tata Indica. Mm. The cost of a driver and fuel is the same in a Tata Indica or in a Camry. Uh, it's just that the revenue you earn from uh, the Tata IndyCar is nothing compared to what it is in a Camry. So we learned that, you know, by, by burning our fingers. We didn't have the best experts on board. That was another, you know, failure on our part. Um, so I think it's good to have a mixture of people who are not from the industry and people who are well ingrained in the industry. Uh, we lacked that. Um, we had alliances with uh, large companies. I think we should have gone for more of a niche uh, sort of alliance. Uh, you know, we learned from Jagdish Shade about, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the company, it was, uh, um, you know, a company in, in the States and how they had sort of grown and how they had one type of vehicle and they provide one type of service. And, and uh, I think we should have implemented a lot of those learnings. Um, how we 
you know, decided to go with what our customers said more than anything else. And again, we came from a very uh, different industry, which was, you know, driven by voice of customer in, in automotive and component manufacturing, very driven by voice of customer, voice of customer. And we went with this voice of customer, except here you're with a B2C business and we're coming from a B2B mindset. So very different mindset. One of the big mistakes we made was we sat in the same head office as, you know, our manufacturing guys. So there was a lot of uh, leaning on them and not really, you know, taking those uh, independent decisions and uh, making small failures and then, you know, improving on them. Um, again, you know, when you have a business like this and you try and um, sort of uh, take it from an unorganized industry to an organized industry, it requires a different uh, sort of game plan. You know, um, we were competing with a small uh, owner who had a family with, of a wife, husband, uh, son, daughter, the in-laws, all running a business, you know. Um, the daughter-in-law would be maybe dispatching a car, the son would be taking a booking, you know, and the mother would be sort of in charge of something. So, you know, when you're running up against these kind of operators, it becomes very difficult when you're in a corporate environment trying to do mm-hmm. events around, you know, car rental. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, whilst we took a lot of, uh, you know, the sixth philosophy, uh, sixth is of self-drive company. And this is a purely chauffeur-driven company. Your brand ambassador becomes a chauffeur. I mean, I would sort of, you know, take drivers on Sundays, make them sit in the back seat and drive them around to show them what kind of driving I wanted, when you should change your gear, etc., to have a smooth ride and all. And, and that worked when you had a few drivers. But as we expanded, it became very difficult to control that driver. Uh, the consumer of a service and the provider of a service have such a large education gap that again, you know, these things make a a big difference. Today, the model probably works because it's an Uber model where, you know, the driver owns his vehicle and he's responsible, he or she is responsible for generating their own revenue. You know? Largely. Largely. And then again, you know, all your cases of sexual harassment, etc. Not that we had any, but there was always that fear and that, you know. Advertising is dead. Yep, you heard me right. Advertising is dead. We're all in the content business now. Let's not call it news, TV, radio, etc, etc. It's all content and we're in the middle of this weirdly exciting phase where all the borders and lines that have been drawn over decades has been swept away by this lovely thing called the internet. We're a show where we don't dwell on just the stuff that is now, but rather the wider stuff about advertising, media, content and the whole goddamn circus surrounding it. Tune in every Tuesday for our weekly unboxing of the mystery box we used to call advertising. I'm Varun Dugirala, co-founder and content chief at The Glitch, and this is my new podcast, Advertising is Dead. Did you also enjoy working in all of these businesses because they were somewhat your own and, you know, you were, you know, while you were part of the overall umbrella, you were not really, you know, I mean, this wasn't your dad's business. Sona yeah. was clearly your dad's business. Yeah. So I, 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 I love the business. Um, you know, for me, uh, I love service business. Service business. I remember when I first came back uh, in the early 90s, you know, to India, and I was like, you know, I want to set up something like a Greyhound bus service. Mm-hmm. So this is almost like that idea, you know, that I had sort of manifested 
uh, in, in my mind and in, in the universe, etc., was coming to life where I wanted to do something with Greyhound buses and stuff. Because I saw Greyhound buses in the States and I saw them running and I said, you know, why can't we have this kind of a service in India? And why can't we service the common man more than, you know, anything else and going up and down? And I was never interested in getting into airlines, you know, but I wanted to get into mass transport in, in this sort of way. So I think this was, you know, something that was very exciting to me. Uh, and I would then try and compare it to how the airlines were executing their uh, businesses, you know, because that was the closest for us to say, okay, this is what Jet does, this is what Kingfisher at that time does, and there was no Indigo at that point. And how do we replicate a service standard like this, etc.? Because again, the switching cost in a car into business is nothing. You know, one wrong pickup and the entire organization switches. So one wrong pickup in terms of you know, your driver didn't get to me when I had to get to a flight and I missed my flight and I missed my meeting, you know. Yeah. And there was no Google Maps at that time, you know, and housing in Delhi is terrible in terms of, you know, the numbering. There can be a B22 next to a C55 and you're like, okay, I have no idea where I'm going. And then when you're not in control and the driver's in control, you're always blaming the driver, you know. And the driver is not, does not know the roads, you know, in... in as per our expectations. And therefore, today, you have Google Maps. And, you know, so life is different. I think we were ahead of our times in this business. And yes, it was a big learning for us. Um, I don't regret it at all. And you did uh, shut it down. Uh, so what happened was we then uh, gave ownership to uh, a South Indian company. So we had one of our sub vendors, what we call vendors, who was supplying cars to us. We sold him the business. Uh, you know, the business was in losses, uh, etc. But... You know, he paid us some consideration and we sold him the business along with the franchise brand. Uh, he then, I think, sort of just eventually, uh, you know, closed the business down because I know that the brand went back to six because I met six several times after that because just from a point of view of I've made a, you know, investment, a couple of investments in some startups which are related to this business and on that right. with that context. So, you know, I ran that uh, 2006. So what happened in parallel to that was I became the global chairman of EO, which is the Entrepreneurs' Organization, which is formerly known as Young Entrepreneurs' Organization. And that's something that, you know, I'd aspired to do. Uh, and uh, I sort of became the global chairman of EO in 2007 was when I took over. But three year, two years prior to that, I was sat on the global board, so I was chairman elect, elect, chairman elect, and then chairman. And that consumed a lot of my time, uh, you know, in terms of travel, in terms of bandwidth, in running an organization which was, you know, an organization of leaders. Uh, so it, it was for me, it was, you know, something that I wanted to do, something that I had sort of set my mind in terms of um, achieving, you know, and, and, uh, and when I was appointed chairman elect, elect, that sort of, you know, consumed a lot of my time. So I had a great bunch of generals, but no soldiers. And, you know, we had a great sort of top team. In fact, um, you know, one of the guys from that team I worked with all the way until, you know, a couple of years ago when, we, when uh, I sold my stake in Sonako. One of them I worked with and uh, discontinued and, and still in, still working with on, on another project. So, you know, I've kept all those relationships and, and they're a great bunch of guys. It's just, I think the time was wrong. And uh, So uh, all of this, again, in retrospect, did it prepare you to take over the business one fine day when your dad yeah, had so, this unfortunate heart attack? 
you know and i see this often and was this was i mean was there a succession plan in place or you just had to take charge so you know uh my father appointed me vice chairman of the business when lalit suri died uh, lalit suri is on our board uh, and a very close friend of our families uh, in fact you know his daughter shraddha is still a very close friend of mine and uh, we're both in the automotive business so we, you know uh, meet more very often you know we even about the business and so he was on our board in uh, in sonakoyo and when he passed away very suddenly you know uh, i think a lot of family businesses started looking at succession planning mm-hmm. um so i became a vice chairman at least uh, in terms of you know uh, designation um and then you know uh, i i think you know the preparation is is a process however when you're thrown into the deep end it's a completely different ball game you know so while um also yeah so while a lot of these things sort of uh, prepare so and, and actually i had a discussion very recently with another a uh, senior businessman who uh, also you know has a large business and runs his business you know in, in the same fashion that we've talked about ownership versus manager etc and he also gives his children the uh, sort of encourages them to get into startups and stuff and i was telling him i said you know the startup that i last ran failed so did that make me more risk averse you know so i can't really sort of pinpoint and say you know because it failed hey am i going to start suddenly looking at everything like oh my god you know maybe i shouldn't do this because it can fail etc so um i think you know there there are good and bad points to this um the good thing that uh, so did it make you risk averse uh, in in some areas in some areas i am sort of so more so you you won't, you won't take a gambling risk you take a calculated i risk. i take more calculated risks i do uh, i would say that's you know how we run i would i mean of late uh, not you know before we started doing uh, these kind of acquisitions that i'd say we were we were consistently boring you know boring boring because cons- you know consistently boring so uh however what really prepared me was in 2008 when my father bought uh, the thesen group business in Which germany business, the thesen group for uh, innovation which i talked about in germany uh we went into the downturn immediately uh which forced him to move to germany and it forced me then to stop all my other ventures and you know sixth was one of them to then say okay let me get rid of sixth to sell it to an entrepreneur who can then take for and move back to running sonakoya the core business the core business and sonakoya at that point uh for the first time in its history had made a loss uh and along with my team i was able to sort of turn that around you know I mean, we brought material cost in two years from eighty-one percent to sixty-five percent of sales. You know, we did everything possible. And the commodity price had nothing to do with it. The commodity price had nothing. We just sort of cut a lot of sort of uh, unwanted stuff. We improved yield. We, uh, you know, uh, we we brought a lot of processes in-house. We did a lot of stuff. Uh, my father and I both stopped taking salary for two years. Uh, we cut all management salaries by eighteen percent. Uh, you know, so we did a lot of stuff to turn the business. I think. running sonakoyo from 2008 to 2015 when he you know suddenly passed away really gave me the experience to you know be in the place that i am today or be in the position i am today in terms of running a group again you know no one teaches you what happens when a founder suddenly dies um and i and i see this you know more often than not however 
uh, you know, the experience that I had because I was left alone to manage that business with a great bunch of professionals, don't get me wrong. Um, you know, I had a great CEO, a great CTO who still works uh, with me, the CTO, and he was, in fact, one of the founding members of Sona Group, you know, so with my father. He joined my father right out of IIT in Bharat Gears and then Sona, and then he's still with me. Uh, he's been a great mentor, you know, to us as a group, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, engineering and, and, uh, and product development, etc., and manufacturing. Um, and, uh, you know, I had a great bunch of people working with me and we worked together uh, and I slowly started falling in love with the manufacturing business. I'm not an engineer by training. Uh, I would say I'm an engineer today, you know, because of everything that I do. However, you know, for me, it was, it was always a sort of, I'm not an engineer and, you know, and I could see myself always looking at some entrepreneurial ventures, you know, here and there. And then when I started sort of, you know, getting into this and I was left alone to do this, I really started falling in love with manufacturing. And today, if you were to ask me if I see myself in anything other than manufacturing, I'd say no. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, and, uh, and that's really what gave me the uh, sort of, uh, you know, the experience, um, the confidence, um, the belief. You know, I'm a very, very strong uh, believer uh, in, in, in the ability of my team, in the ability of ourselves to sort of, you know, create success. Uh, and, you know, so that prepared me. I think. So when you were left alone to run the business here in India, would you say that besides giving you that inherent confidence, it also gave the larger team an opportunity to uh, judge you and examine you and score you as a leader? Definitely. I mean, uh, you know, I, I would imagine that, you know, my, I, again, I, I'm a very uh, sort of team player sort of guy. Uh, and that comes from Polo? I mean, I think Polo comes because of that. Polo. You know, uh, because I started Polo very late in life and I think that Polo comes because of that. Um, in fact... Because Polo is also about, each, you know, a team, but each Polo, one doing yeah. their... Polo is the most... Uh, the game where you require the most amount of anticipation. You require anticipation, you require a lot of teamwork for Polo. You can't do it on your own. And not only teamwork, you require work with horses. So you require, you know, you've got machines. four players. And, so you have yeah. people and you have machines, yeah, machines and you need to get them so, to work together. So you, need, you really need to be in sync with, uh, with each other. Um, you know, so when I sort of took over, I think the first thing that I did was I made a glass room from my room. You know, it had wood, etc. I said, let's remove all the wood in this office. Mm-hmm. We need gla- offices because there's a lot of private discussions happening. Uh, however, my office was made of glass. I sat on the same floor as everybody else. Uh, you know, we had, I think, five or six cabins where we had our CEO, who was a Japanese gentleman, who was my joint managing director. There was me, the managing director. You know, I had a CEO who had a small room, a CFO. And this so, you're talking while your dad was in while Germany. While he was in Germany, right. you know. So we made everything glass and everything was sort of transparent, everything was open. Because I believed that, you know, we really needed to work with the people, you know. We really needed to sort of, uh, uh, you know, be one. And our culture sort of, again, goes back to Japanese culture where we eat the same food, we eat in the same canteen, we wear the same uniform. It's all very sort of standard. And that's really what sort of, you know, drives businesses. Again, I'm a strong believer in there should not be, we should not have, uh, I want to, I'll call it an aerocity office. 
we're in manufacturing, we should sit in the plant. So we always sit in the plants. Uh, in Munich, we sit in the plant. Uh, here, I sit in one of our plants. Um, we have a very lean, what we call head office or central structure. We've got me, my CEO, my CFO, my group uh, technology officer, and the legal guy, head of legal. That's all we have. We have five of us. We sit in one office. Um, and we do that because, you know, we have to have some kind of centralized mechanism of monitoring. However, everything is run very decentralized. Uh, you know, each plant has their own CEOs, uh, their own sort of teams, and they manage their own sort of, uh, you know, uh, businesses. And Sona Koyo also was, um, you know, was one company with a bunch of different joint ventures or two joint ventures we had really. We had a lot of different plants and, you know, Chennai was a completely different plant. It was a different animal altogether from the north and we had one in Gujarat. And, you know, so I spent a lot of time traveling, you know, between the plants. I spent a lot of time with my suppliers. We had 182 suppliers in Sonakoya, which was, you know, maybe about 180 too many. But, you know, uh, that's how the supply chain in India uh, the automobile supply chain is and, and that's one of the key challenges we face with a fragmented supply chain when we want to you know go to 6 to 8 to 10 million vehicles how do you consolidate this supply chain because there's not enough investment going into the supply chain tier 2 and tier 3 suppliers because their businesses are so small how do they invest in people in man, uh, in uh, machines and equipment and technology etc so I spent a lot of time with my suppliers because I spoke a lot about quality to them you know I wanted them to sort of and I wanted the owners to be involved in uh, the quality movement within their companies. For me, that was a big learning as well. I learned a lot from my suppliers. They spent a lot of time in their shop floors trying to understand what they did, uh, which was unique. I always sort of went into, uh, you know, uh, their uh, sort of businesses, telling them that I will make a presentation on quality. They should make a presentation on what unique practices they have so we can, you know, sort of understand from them. And then I can walk the shop floor really from a point of giving them suggestions. I didn't want to review meetings. I wanted to really do meetings where I could sort of add value to their business, not tell them what they're doing wrong, and then let them... And review meetings were done, but done in a different sort of uh, forum. I spent a lot of time in within each department, so I'd go from, you know, maintenance to quality to HR to sales to marketing and just try and get the whole department together. We'd do what we call standing meetings. I'd go stand in their department, go through their workflow, what they did, again, what they did unique, where the challenges were, how we could help them. So, you know, I spent a lot of time in sort of, uh, you know, uh, sort of preparing, you know, for the future, you know, through, right. through a lot of these uh, methods. Right. That's really what gave me the confidence and the experience. And working together with the team, you know, was really the, the yeah. So now advantage. that you're you're running the business, uh, what are the you know couple of things, two three things that you feel that you've learned from your father that you now take f forward? So my father always taught me, even you know while we grew up, that the biggest uh, sort of the most important thing to him was integrity and reputation. Right, and I always say reputation is you know a core value for us. You know, uh, integrity is extremely, extremely important. You know, and uh, I think when I look at my role now, you know, and I discuss it with you briefly in terms of an owner, what really is the role of an owner other than you know we meet the customer to satisfy 
the customer that you know we're here as owners and to support the business and this business is there for the long term uh, we look at joint ventures or i look at joint ventures and i look at acquisitions and of course our financial investments but compliance compliance is a big issue you know corporate governance is a big issue how do we make sure our companies are meeting corporate governance standards or meeting or or our compliance standards etc so that was something and and you could see that with my father uh, had very strong boards mm-hmm. you know we had very sort of uh, strong board members uh, independent directors and the independent directors spent a lot of time with us in our business so they would literally come every month and do reviews of our business you know really from an independent perspective that gave us the uh you know sort of the the mindset where you had to sort of you know perform and you had someone sort of looking over you etc so again for him reputation integrity was 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 of utmost importance quality was very very important he uh you know challenged the demi quality prize in 2003 i think which when we won it it took us took him 5 years to get there uh we were the first cheering business in the world to get demi quality prize We're one of the very few companies in India that have demi quality, or Sona Coil, or JTEC is now called JTEC. We had Sona B L W, and now challenging the demi quality prize. You know, going down that uh, that journey to the point where uh, I remember once we had a quality failure, and the managing director of Toyota India came to our factory, and there was a problem with uh, one of the workers had increased the uh, temperature of the welding, uh, one of the welding operations within the the equipment. and uh, i along with the md of toyota uh, india went back and forth to the shop floor about 10 times that day you know because he kept looking at the machine and came back and made notes while we had no conversation about it while we went back and forth for me it was the significance that people saw you know the md of their company the md of toyota going back and forth and how important quality was what i did next was i took made a quality presentation to 3500 people in groups of 10 20 50 whatever that may be english and hindi so i traveled from location to location i spent about two months just doing this and i remember we had plants in dharwara and it sometimes in the end of the monsoon season it would take us two two three hours to get to the plant but i was like you know what we have to do this because i wanted to show them what the importance of quality was so again that really came down from my father to say that you know one of the things that we will not compromise on is quality we will not stop investing in quality even in a downturn we may stop other costs but we will not stop spending on quality because quality is of utmost importance and you know in our industry creates a hygiene factor and you can't sort of ignore it and that's really what's kept us above or at the edge you know and then today in india frankly in our forging business we have a monopoly you know because a we have process that's superior and b you know our quality is is of of that nature and uh, what are a couple of things that you do differently from your father so i feel that i'm i'm a better delegator than he was you know uh, and again this may also be uh, you know just because of the phase they were in in our business where you know i am forced to sort of uh, run the business as an owner he always he was an entrepreneur and so he ran it in a very different style um you know i feel that um you know i'm more sort of open to uh or or more driven by growing the business you know 
and uh, and allowing uh, you know investors to come in etc uh, i don't know you know if he would have sort of brought in a large financial investor um, into the business uh, you know as easily as i have um, you know because again i feel that you know this business uh, we should be able to create a large platform from this business that's really my my aim is to create a platform from what we have i think uh, my father did an awesome job and he is a legend you know in in his in in his time and what he did in creating a platform for us and it's really my role now to take this platform to the next level you know and to take this to the next level there are things that i'm going to have to do which would be very different from what my father would have done but that's the way of uh, business you know the inheritor takes it and then grows the business a uh, pleasure talking to you sanjay thank you for your thank time you the inheritors podcast series by bloomberg quint sachin tendulkar virat kohli don bradman and now cyrus brocha okay probably not in the right company I mean Don Bradman is Australian but it's called Cyrus says a wonderful show about everything find the show on the IVM podcast app ivmpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts